Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. If you were here in February, I shared a little bit about my family heritage, or at least I talked about my dad some during that time. And um, really my heritage, uh, I didn't grow up in the church. And so I never didn't really get a lineage of faith passed down uh, to me. Um, that's a little bit of my story. That's a part of my story. But uh, my wife's story is the exact opposite. As far up as we can look into her family tree, we see faithfulness all over it. Now I'll tell you up front that this type of faithfulness uh, I don't believe has ever made the headlines of a paper. And this type of faithfulness has not necessarily attracted a large following. But I do think this type of faith has changed generations. I mean, just for example, uh, my wife's parents, uh, they've been serving at a church in Fort Worth for 45 years, not on staff, but for most of, for about half of that time, they've been walking with single young adults, kind of ministering and shepherding to them. And then the other half of the 45 years, they've been discipling young married couples, giving their lives away, shepherding, and literally building into the next generation. And it's been a gift to hundreds of uh, individuals and families. And that's just on my wife's parents. Now, her grandparents, Hal on one side, uh, one of Stacy's grandfathers. Uh, I wish you had a chance to meet him. Uh, he was so fun, super humble, life-giving, and at the same time, a complete goofball. I mean, loved to have so much fun, pull off pranks, all sorts of stuff. You know, you're in the family kind of when your 80-year-old grandfather-in-law kind of pulls a prank on you. You're like, I'm in, all right, good. And yet he was ever faithful, known around town, for always asking, tell me about your church. What church do you go to? That was his way of starting spiritual conversations. And that was just his chance to kind of then begin to figure out how he could care and shepherd. That was on uh, the maternal side. On the paternal side are Lamar and Ruth. And Lamar, uh, Jackson was one of the quietest men I ever met. I, I literally never heard him speak more than a handful of words in each and every day. And Ruth, uh, Ruth's still alive about four foot six, small, quiet woman. But I will tell you this, you can walk into Midway Macedonia Baptist Church in West Georgia and you will see their names, Lamar and Ruth Jackson, all over that building. Their names are on plaques, their names are on the building on one of the wings there. And it's not because they donated a lot of money. It's because they've been faithfully, quietly serving for 60 some odd years there. Not on staff, just humbly giving their lives away. And it's such an encouragement. And I could go higher up into the family tree. And one day you should get to hear that from my wife uh, because when she tells her story, she loves to celebrate the nameless face that some 200 years ago planted the flag in her lineage and said, as for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. And for 200 years, the Jackson Summers and a couple of other last names have been serving the Lord through good times and through bad times. 
in Georgia, Alabama, and a few other places. And look, I mean, they have persevered in the face of many trials. Wars have come and gone. Financial swings have come and gone. Political parties have come and gone. Church leadership has changed time and time again. And through it all, they have continued to be faithful. And today I get to be a beneficiary of it. I get to see the example that's been passed down through my wife. And even my kids get to taste it. Uh, the privilege it is to get to be grafted in into such a faithful lineage. Now, look, your family tree, I pray, looks like that. It may not. I hope that it's the story of more people than not in here. What a beautiful testimony that is, ultimately. Or maybe your family heritage, your family lineage looks a little bit more like my tree, which it's like, man, you got to kind of squint to see a little bit of faithfulness here and there. But I do want to tell you this, and I want to encourage with you today that in my wife's family, 200 years of faithfulness started with one person. And so I don't know what your past is. I don't know what all's happened in your family tree, but it just takes one person to kind of plant the flag. And all of a sudden, some things begin to change as the Lord can use one person's faithfulness to affect generation after generation. We've been in a section of Hebrews and we're wrapping it up today in Hebrews chapter 11 where we're getting to learn about some of these people that kind of planted their flag and then the Lord in his kindness multiplied it and passed it on. And we've been learning about kind of the Hebrew faith, the Hebrew people that were faithful. And it's the shared collective heritage of the Hebrew people. And he's been narrating this history so as to give us an example as to what to look like. What does faith look like? And he's been putting before us examples so that we can go, okay, that's what he's talking about. And then he's also been writing this so as to kind of help us count the costs, help us to kind of see, okay, this is what the faithful can expect to come along the way during their journey. He's been painting that for us. He's gonna do it really well in this section of scripture of Hebrews eleven twenty three through 40. And then I think the third thing he's ultimately trying to do is he's trying to exhort his audience. And today he's trying to exhort us to run our leg of the relay race faithfully. That we can take the baton from one generation and pass it to another. Now the Hebrew people that he was writing, uh, as we have continually reminded you all, were facing intense persecution. They were facing it from Rome, from other Jews. They were, they were getting, uh, their property, it says, was getting stolen, was getting taken from them. They were losing their finances. They were losing their reputation, their status in life. They had been kicked out of synagogue now that they were believing in Christ. And so we've been reminding one another that they were tempted to bail. They didn't have a whole lot left but they were tempted to kind of return to what they had left. And I look, there was a lot of enemies in the early church for these messianic Hebrew people. But I think one of the greatest enemies that they were facing was self-preservation. They had a lot of different things coming at them, but I think they were having trouble prying their fingers off what little they still had. And it's a struggle that was very real for them, but I think it's a struggle that's really real for us in the room today. Self-preservation has always been one of faith's greatest enemies. Now, for you and me, the self-preservation isn't about right now preserving. For most of us, we've got our fingers wrapped around the abundance that we have. 
And we like the comfort and we like the standard of living that we have. We like the ability to use our time and our talent and treasures in the ways that we want to, even though those are things that the Lord has given us. And so we have our fingers wrapped tightly around the abundance of what we have. I think we like to have our financial futures planned out. We want to spend time how we want to spend time. We want to spend our talents and gifts on ourselves and not for the benefit of others. And none of this, mind you, is walking by faith. This is walking by self-preservation. And that's not the call for the believer. And walking by self-preservation, that type of living will crumble in the face of trial and in the face of hardship. And so as our pastor speaks to a group of people that had their fingers wrapped around just a little bit, Let's let it minister to you and me who maybe have our fingers wrapped around a whole lot more. We're going to dive into Hebrews 11, 23 through 40 today, and we're going to kind of look at two main sections. And first is uh, 23 through 31. We're going to look primarily at the life of Moses and his example, and we're going to draw some observations from his life. And then we're going to look at the back half uh, as he moves through kind of a lot of other names, some that are unnamed so as to just count the costs of what we can expect in this lifetime. We're gonna look at some of the expectations for the faithful, and then we'll close with the final exhortation towards faithfulness. But let's start with some observations about the life of faith. Let's read the text first. Hebrews 11, verse 23 through 31. We've kind of made our way out of the uh, heroes of Genesis, like Noah and Abraham, and now we're moving into Exodus and beyond. Verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, they were drowned. And by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. And by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So much gold in there. There's a lot of different ways to approach texts like this. One of the things that I've enjoyed, with, especially with kind of so much uh, in here, and maybe it's a Bible study tip for how you can read it, but I've just jotted down over time, I've just jotted down observations of what faith looks like. And, 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 and what I'm going to share today are seven observations on the life of faith from this little passage, just as that kind of, that have spurred me on in the past and spur me on still today. And so let's jump in. Observation number one. Faith is not a popularity contest. I get that. Verse 23, it says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months. And it says who? By his parents. His parents, Moses' story starts with two faithful parents. Some of the greatest heroes in heaven will have little to zero name recognition here on this earth. 
There's a lot of Lamar and Ruth Jacksons that are in heaven who were really faithful here and not many people knew about it. Anyone know the name of Moses' parents by show of hands? It is in your Bible, but it's very easy to skip over. I even had to remind myself, it's Amram and Jochebed, Exodus 6, 20. And yet, when it came time to list out the faithful Hebrew nation, Moses' parents get mentioned here. If no one sees or celebrates you in the moment, that's okay. Just keep being faithful. God won't miss it. There'll be a lot of heroes in heaven who we didn't realize were heroes here on this earth. Faith is not a popularity contest. Two, number two, observation. Faith does not succumb to the world's indoctrination. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Mind you, that was 40 years into his journey. He had been indoctrinated with Egyptian culture, with the Egyptian gods and goddesses. Pharaoh was one of his teachers, for goodness sakes. He was indoctrinated by a a culture that was pagan. You and I, we cannot avoid being indoctrinated by this world. We're just gonna be in and around the world's ways. We can't help that, but we don't have to succumb to it. We may not be able to kind of get out of the waters of this world, but it doesn't mean we have to drink deeply from them. And so question for us in the room, how are you doing North Dallas residents? and not succumbing to the indoctrination of kind of the world we live in today. So many different challenges, so many different things that kind of draw us in, whether it's materialism or standard of living. And it's really easy to kind of go, well, I'm doing, I'm doing a little better than my neighbor. They're, they're a little out of control, but we're less than that. It's not what I'm talking about. We're called to live according to God's ways, not slightly better than some of the world that surrounds us. We also live in a world today, it's definitely hit North Dallas, where there is a, we live in a culture that is at war against God's word. And so how are you doing at preparing your heart, the first thing, in order to fight back against it, is we gotta know what is in this book. We've gotta equip ourselves with the word of God so that we can speak truth back towards lies that are coming our way, and we've gotta be ready for it and able to do it. We don't need to match the world's ways in which they shout down scripture, shout down at God. We gotta be ready to love according to how this book calls us to love, but we gotta be ready for it. We can't succumb to the world's indoctrination. Can't drink the water even though we swim in it. And so how tight is your grip to some of the things we're talking about and can you get your hands loose from it? and ready to walk in the ways that God tells us to walk. Number, observation number three, faith is not static. It grows or it shrinks. Notice the key one of the key words in verse 23 is the word hidden. In verse 24, one of the key words is, is, is Moses refused. And now we're gonna see in verse 25, Moses choose to do something. And what does he choose to do? To be mistreated with the people of God. And that was rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Sin either, or faith either grows or it shrinks. And the primary way by which it grows is through faithful obedience. It might start hidden 
And then you eventually have got to get to a point where you're like, I cannot go that way. But faith for it to continue to grow, you must ultimately choose to go the narrow road. That's the road that I'm going to move towards and stay on. Faith grows or it shrinks over time. And the way that our faith is intended to grow is through obedience. And so many of us, we want to be ready for some grand act of faith in the future. Sometimes we can play out scenarios, go, well, if such and such ever happens, I'm going to be ready. Well, the way that you can know that you'll be ready for that day is how are you doing at the little things that are right before you today? How are you doing at stewarding your bank account? How are you doing at stewarding daily evangelism opportunities that are always around us? How are you doing at being faithful when no one is watching? Those are some of the things that will tell you if you're going to be ready for that day. Those are great questions to Live out in your community group. Ask others, how am I doing at this? I know we want to be ready for some day that's off in the future. How we're operating today will give us a glimpse into how we might operate that day. Verse 26. Let's read what Moses gave up. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward Observation number four, faith does not seek power, pleasure, and riches. It might come, it might not, but faith doesn't seek it out. Moses, it says, gave up power, pleasure, and riches. And it's not like we don't have any idea if this was even a big deal. Egypt still stands today. It's a known commodity. We still see huge building projects like temples and pyramids obsolesque statues all over the place. We can just begin to imagine the wealth that a nation like Egypt once had. And Moses, as it says, refused it with intent, deliberately. And this all happened at the age of 40. And I have to remind my kids, like, hey, look, 40 doesn't mean I'm on my deathbed right now, right? They love to just go, man, you're almost gone. I'm like, no, 40 is like the prime of your life. And, and at the age of 40, not on his deathbed, kids, if you're listening, Moses rejected all that the world had to offer and said, no, 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 that is not the direction I want to go. And in its place, he chose suffering and affliction. He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God. And he chose something greater than the treasures of Egypt. What is that? Who does that sound like, by the way? A prince left the riches of the throne room to become like one of the enslaved in order to free the enslaved. It's a little glimpse of the gospel right there. Moses is not the savior, but he, his life was a glimpse into the savior that was to come. In all of our lives, if you've been rescued and you've been redeemed, our lives are to ooze the gospel in some form or way. It might just be a type, it might be a shadow, but that is what we are ultimately called to do. Moses did it so well. How are you doing at it? And then it begs the question, how in the world did he do it? With all that was right around him, all that he could see with his eyes, how was he able to do it? J.C. Ryle said it like this, that he said it was by faith. It was like a telescope for him. Faith was a telescope for him. And he said, besides all that was around him, it's like he looked through the telescope and said, wait, hold on a second. There's a greater reward coming. 
I'm going to look ahead and the reward's worth it. Whatever I can get right here and now, it's fleeting, it's fickle. It will all wither away. But my telescope of faith tells me there's a greater reward coming and it's worth it. This one's worth it. And he saw it. This idea of giving up power and pleasure and riches, that is a message that doesn't sell here in this country today. Amen. I'll be honest. I mean, it is like a message that I have trouble selling myself on because we long for it. We don't just refuse. I mean, we pursue it. This is how we measure our years. It's like, man, we got a raise. I got promoted. This was a good year. We measure it by these things. And by no means am I condemning riches or authority or power. But I am warning against the mindset that forgets that the gospel of Jesus Christ calls us first to deny ourselves. Jesus tells us that the way to be last today or the way to be first is to be last today. It says if we want to save our souls right, we've got to loosen our grip off of this world and reject the things that the world says are valuable and find provision in that which that Christ says it's valuable. I'll just tell you this real quick and then we'll move on. But the, one of the reasons why this doesn't sell well in my own soul, doesn't sell well in America is truthfully, I think it has this idea of rejecting power and pleasure and riches doesn't sell well in the American church. For too long, we've loved bigger buildings, bigger budgets, as many people in the seats as we can get. And we've thought this is about being as big and prestigious as we can, but the American church, you and I right now, we've got to repent and understand that that stuff is not what we're called to do. We gotta pick up faith like a telescope and go, whoa, 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 that's not the reward. I think there's something greater. There's a greater reward waiting for us as a church and there's a greater responsibility than any of those things. Our call is to be and make disciples. That's what we'll be judged by one day. None of these other things. They may come or they may not. Our job is to be and make disciples. And so church, who are you discipling? Who's following you? I'm not asking how many people like your Facebook or Instagram post about Jesus. I'm asking who are the people that you're in one-on-one, one-on-two, one-on-three relationships that you're actively pushing towards Christ and that you're being actively spurred on by all. We are called to live in life-on-life discipleship with one another. That's our great call. And I think in order to do that, we're gonna have to not seek the power and the privileges and the wealth that so often make us wanna hold on to our lives. Number five, faith does not fear man. Look at verse 27. It says, by faith, he's going to model what his parents did. He left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Visible man really wants you to do the faithful thing. Egypt had plans for Moses' life. And even at the age of 40, the Hebrew people had plans for Moses' life. But God took Moses into the wilderness and says, I want you to learn what my plan is for your life. Don't fear man. Don't please man. I want you to follow what I have for you. And then in verse 28 and verse 29, we see some of the things that begin to happen in Moses' life was he comes and helps deliver the Hebrew people, it says, by faith, verse 28, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. 
And by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do so, were drowned. And you kind of look at these and you're like, oh my goodness. To us, they're kind of facts that we've read about in in the Bible, but could you imagine them unfolding before your very eyes like Moses? And, And if I'm Moses, I'm like, this is crazy. How is this even possible? And yet Moses' faith had been built in the wilderness for 40 years. He had seen God sustaining miraculous power there. And so when it came time for that power then to deliver the Hebrew people from Egypt, Moses obeyed and led God's people through that deliverance. Faith is built in the wilderness. So many people want a great public victory, but few people want to do what it takes in private to be ready for those moments. And so don't fear God's refining work. Don't fear when you're in the anonymous wilderness and life doesn't totally add up. God may be producing something in you. He's drawing something in you. He's building a faith in you that will be sweet in the moment and might come in handy down the road. And then observation number seven. Faith identifies with the household of God it's been one of the themes that uh, has actually been kind of brewing in Hebrews. We, we looked at it a few weeks ago. Rob unpacked when he was unpacking Hebrews 10, the end of Hebrews 10, he was calling them, hey, don't go back to your old way. Stay with the assembly of God. Don't forsake meeting and being together with the household of God. And it's gonna be a little bit of the thread that he ties through the Hebrew people in, in chapter 11, he talked about how Noah saved the household and how Moses, we've already talked about, identified with the people of God. And then we're going to see what the people of God do. Verse 30, by faith, the people of God surrounded the walls of Jericho. And after they had been encircled for seven days, those walls fell down. By faith, Rahab the prostitute didn't perish when that happened with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She identified with the people of God. She had heard stories about it. Go read Joshua. She had heard stories of God's faithfulness and said, I want to identify with God and those people. So I want to speak to the believer in the room for a second. If you've trusted in Christ, but are not identifying with the household of God today, you are not walking faithfully. Believers are to be functioning members of God's body, functioning members within a local church. Now you get freedom to pick what local church you become a member at or or throw all in with, but you do not have freedom, believer, to live in isolation. Now I get it. There's a couple of reasons why some of us are prone to do this. Some of us are skeptical of the church. I've read some of the same headlines you have, both in the last 10 months, 10 years, or last past two millennium. The church has had a lot of shameful moments for the last 2000 years, a lot of black eyes, so to speak. And many of them have happened in the last 10, 15, 20 years, but we can, it, none of it changes the fact that the church is God's plan A for the world. And we've got to jump back in. It takes trust. It takes walking by faith going, okay, God, this is your vessel. Let me be a part of it. So he's not asking us to keep tr- putting our faith in fallen men, but he is asking us to walk by faith in his plan for this world. There's others in the room, maybe many in the room, 
who've been wounded by the church directly. And if that's a part of your story, I genuinely just want to stop and just say, I'm so sorry. It's not God's intent that the church would wound its people. And yet, it's what fallen men and women do is they will wound other co-laborers at times. And I'm so sorry that that's happened to you. If that's happened to you at this church, we also want to say we're sorry. That was not our intent. And if you've met with us once, meet with us again, but please let us know. We want to come alongside you. We want to own whatever we can own in the ways that we've wounded you. And we want to meet you with where you're at. We want to walk with you. We don't want to forsake you. We want to live in unity with you. Please ask us. We'll have friends down front at the end of services. Raise your hands. Let us know. Email us. We want to let you know that we love you and we want to be reconciled with you. Pastor up in the Northeast, a guy named John Tyson wrote this. It says, the scars on my soul come from the church as does the joy that has come to define me. Leading in the church has been the source of both the trauma and the consolations in my life. Change out the word with church and the Hebrew people and it's like Moses could have written that quote. He had been wounded a time or two from the people. And yet some of the great joys of his life came from God's people. And so if you are not connected to a local body of believers, you are not walking by faith. You're likely walking in some form of self-preservation going, I don't want to be hurt again. But that's not the call. The call is to walk by faith. Avail yourself again to one of God's great means of blessing to this world and for you. One of the most instructive things about my wife's lineage, at least for me, and I'm not saying it's prescriptive. There's, there's good reasons to, to leave a church. There's, there's important reasons to leave a church. But one of the great descript, uh, uh, descriptions of my wife's family is her parents, members at one church for the last 45 years. One set of grandparents, same church, 60 some odd years. The other set, 65 years at two different churches. They moved once. And again, there's good reasons to sometimes switch shirts, but it's instructive to me. It's an example to me. They sat under teachers that, they weren't, that weren't their favorites. They sat under worship music that wasn't always their style. There were scars that came along the way, and yet by faith, they stayed committed to deploying their time, talent, and treasures to help serve the local church. They didn't say it was easy, but it was faith. And it's what believers are called to do. This is not a place to come sit and soak and absorb some teaching and some worship music. You are called to be the church and be all in and be connected here and giving away your gifts here just as much as others have been giving their gifts away for you to consume. We want you to own this place and be a part of it. I encourage the first hour, maybe this is for you next week, but membership class is happening right now. For some of you, that's the most faithful thing you could do is to go leave here, get in to state breakout five and go, I want to be a member here. If this, you can't find it here, go find a church where you can get committed. But get connected to the household of God. It's what God's people do. That's just seven observations that I had from here. We got to keep moving though. Let's finish this out and let's just prepare our hearts for some of the expectations that await God's people. It doesn't always go splendidly for them. And the pastor is going to paint an example of that here and starting in verse 32. What more shall I say for time would fail me to tell of Gideon or Brock or Samson or Jephthah or David and Samuel and the prophets 
who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced judgment, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. This is some of the heritage of the Hebrew people that we've also been grafted into. And some of them were of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of this earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Let me give you three expectations for the faithful. The first is this. The faithful know Christianity is not a life of ease and abundance. The soil of our very faith rests in the cross of Christ. Our, the soil of our faith at, 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 is at the center of it is suffering. Christ's suffering for us is what has founded our faith. He's died for our sins. And in, for the last 2,000 years, that soil has been watered has been cultivated with the, the blood of martyrs. Maybe not right here in our neck of the woods for the last few years, but still to this day. The faithful know Christianity is not a life of ease and blessing. But I do think here in particular, the last 200, 300 years have kind of inoculated us against what has happened in some of the rest of the world. Now, I don't want us to feel guilty for our freedoms. I want us to celebrate it because when the faithful speak up, there can be freedoms that accompany that. But I fear that those freedoms have caused us to kind of pursue ease and abundance. But the faithful know that we have a job description, whether we like it or whether we not. The Hebrew, some of the job description for them, look at that, verse 33, faith, they conquered kingdoms, they enforced judgment, they obtained promises, they, they stopped the mouths of lions. That's probably not in our job description today. It was theirs. Quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, became mighty in war. We too have a job description. We're supposed to fight against our own sin that easily entangles us. We're supposed to speak out when, when progressivism kind of closes in and is at war with God's word, we still speak out and stand up for justice. We stand up for the care of orphans and widows. This is all of our job descriptions, church. We're to deal gently with the weak. We're to come alongside those that are caught in sin. These are some of the things that we're supposed to do. But in self-preservation, sometimes we go, man, that sounds hard and that sounds scary. No, believers have always, for 2,000 years, the job description is run towards the chaos. And so for each one of us in here, don't fear the pastoral phone call. Don't fear the opportunity to be used by God in major ways. Don't fear the opportunity to use your time, talent, and treasure to loosen your grip and go serve a world that is in desperate need of what the Lord has to offer. In my flesh, I want to get fat and happy in the palaces of Egypt. The Spirit of God wants me on the edge of the Red Sea ready, even if the world's bearing down on me. That's where the Spirit of God wants me to live my days. Number two, the faithful accept God's blessings and God's hardships. 
For too long, the American church, I think, has preached maybe explicitly, maybe implicitly at times that there's kind of this idea, this rubric, this formula that says if you're faithful, good things will happen. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes when you walk in obedience, there's good things that come along to it. A lot of it happens internally in the soul, but sometimes external circumstances kind of come along for the ride. But sometimes when we walk by faith, the outcomes are negative and there's a cost to it. Health and wealth and perfect relationships, those aren't guaranteed today. And anyone who tells you differently speaks a false gospel. And so if you're only walking by uh, faith, if you think walking by faith is only accepting God's blessings but not God's hardships, that's not walking by faith. That's walking by self-preservation. You've only been hoping faith would somehow preserve you. God has always used hardships to strengthen his people and to strengthen his church. I have a friend, I was here Tuesday night, I got to hear my friend Billy's testimony of what the Lord's done in his life. And it was such an encouragement to me in part because I know that part of Billy's story starts a little bit with his wife, Monica. Um, and she had been, just about three or four years ago, began following the Lord. And uh, it had been such a gift for the first time in her life, really just started walking by faith. And she became a gift to this place. She became a gift to women's Bible study. She became a gift to regeneration. But about a year or year and a half, hardship came Monica's way. And it was in the form of my friend Billy's confession. You see, for years, Billy had been hiding uh, his addiction to alcohol, his addiction to pain prescription drugs. He'd been hiding from both his wife and from his employer that he'd been stealing large amounts of money from him. And yet on August 30th, 2021, my friend Billy confessed to Monica. Hardship arrived. In order to pay back their company, they had to sell most of what they've owned or what they owned at the time. And it makes you go, and it makes you go, well, how did, how did Monica respond in that moment when that hardship arrived? I kid you not, I was there that day. This is what I saw. I saw Monica sitting right next to her husband, holding his hand, and I listened to her say, I've been praying for this day. She had pushed on Billy going, something feels off. Is there something you're not telling me? And Billy's like, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And so one of the ways she kind of loosened the grip was she just went, got on her knees and just said, Lord, I think something's up. I'm not gonna try to control my husband, but I'm gonna pray for him. And if it brings hardship into my life, but if it brings him into the light, bring it on, please, Lord. And so August 30th was a gift to Monica. She had been praying, bring on the hardship. I think it'll be better for our marriage. Today, two years later, they're leading all over the place. They serve other men and women and couples all through our hardship. He's our camera guy this morning. <laughs> and as I sat and listened to his testimony, I thanked God that there was a lady in our congregation married to him named Monica who just said, hey, if it comes, it comes. And I can't, I honestly am waiting for the day because it'll strengthen our family. We're beneficiaries of that type of faith here. And so I just want to encourage you for a second. As you accept God's blessings and God's hardships, if you're tired wrangling little kids and not getting much sleep and you're doing your best to follow Jesus and point them to Jesus, but it just doesn't feel like they have the Sermon on the Mount memorized yet, I just want to say you're in the fight. 
keep at it. If not all of your relationships are going as you would have it, if you're fighting for reconciliation, if you're owning your part of the junk, you're in the fight. The external reconciliation may not have happened yet, but you're doing it. And you're walking through God's blessings and through God's hardships. If you've been battling some of the same sin struggles for years and you're tired, don't give in. You're in the fight. Don't stop. Maybe if your whole life has fallen apart and you feel like a fool for clinging to God's promises, you are no fool. You are faithful. You're in the fight. Don't stop. The faithful accept God's blessings and God's hardships. Keep at it. I know many of you are. Last thing. The faithful live for another world. Amidst all of this, they, 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 they know that temporal deliverance isn't guaranteed. They know that they might be tortured. They know that they might be, um, it says stone, that could be Stephen. That might be what Jeremiah, church tradition, old tea was stone, sawn in two. Church tradition thinks that might've been Isaiah, might be killed with a sword. You might be destitute, afflicted, mistreated, but the faithful know that they're living for another world. They have telescope in hand and says, whatever comes my way, good or bad, I've got a reward that's coming and I know it's worth it. And that's the world I'm gonna live for. And it's why in verse 35, that some were tortured, refusing to accept release, but they knew that they were gonna rise again to a better life. Verse 38, they knew that the world was not worthy of the faith in which they were walking. One of my favorite commentaries, George Guthrie said this, it says, God often makes his own sweet unappreciated music with secondhand pawn shop instruments cast off by the world. Tell you, you might feel like a useless, discarded, broken instrument, but in God's hands, you are a worthy vessel that he desires to use for his glory. And the world may not appreciate the music that comes from your life, but you're not living for their appreciation. You're living to offer up your life to the one that offered his for yours first. Faithful live for another world and so you don't need to convince the world that you're worthy. Just keep walking in faith by Christ. So much more in Hebrews chapter 11 that I'd love to unpack. I'm sure Kegs felt the same, I'm sure Derek felt the same, but let me close with this. And, and, and I don't know if you're like me, and, and, and I know some of you probably are, but man, when I tell the story of my life, it seems like the only things that I can recall are my failures and my weaknesses and my sin or that sin, that one moment. It's like, why did I do that? Dang it, that's like permanently in my story. And yet, Hebrews chapter 11 just stares me in the face and it reminds me of how good our Savior is. First of all, when I go through those struggles and I think he's the one condemning me, no, that's my voice. That's the enemy that's in my head. My Savior stands in the heavenly courts interceding for me and advocating for me. That's what we've been talking about in other messages on Hebrews. That's how good Jesus is. He's not the one condemning us. He's interceding and advocating for us, those of us that are believers. But even beyond that, if by grace through faith, a little bit of faithfulness somehow ekes out of my life, God records it. What a marvel. He's not up there logging every last sin because of what Christ has accomplished. He actually has a, 
starts to write down the bits of faithfulness that he sees in his followers. And I think one day it's gonna be the stories that fill up heaven in all of eternity, even in stories from your lives. We're gonna get to hear of people that planted the flag and then 200 years of faithfulness because God's able to multiply faithfulness in such crazy ways. We're gonna get to hear stories like that. We're gonna get to hear stories of little things that you barely even did, that Christ did through you, and we're gonna marvel at the effects of it. That's the story your Savior is logging. God is not so unjust as to forget the work that you have done in having ministered to and, and still ministering to his saints. That's how good our God is. Amen, church? a little bit of a taste of Hebrews 11. Stay in the game. Stay in the game. And when I think about all that the Lord's doing, I'm like, man, Lord, just help me give you a little bit more material along the way in which to write down some things. Not so that I can get the glory, but so that I can marvel anew at what your son is able to do with broken pawn shop instruments. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.